Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, everybody. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a tremendous variety of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device in your hands, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, etc. And here is the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get My Mother Was Nuts, the new memoir, by Penny Marshall, or how about the Fran Lebowitz Reader, narrated by Fran Lebowitz. Just about any book at Audible can be yours free of charge, and if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program, I get a few nickels, that's a nice thing to do. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a terrific deal. It is available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the episode you have located. This is what you are consuming. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Uh, What is happening over here in Los Angeles? Uh, I'm uncertain. I remain uncertain. I just read something online just moments ago. It was an opinion column. It was a literary review, uh, an opinion piece type situation, uh, wherein the author sounded like she was sure of what she was talking about. And she was making really strong statements that I found myself agreeing with, or 
uh, I didn't necessarily agree with them, but I was intimidated by them somehow because they were declarative, they were bold, they were issued without apology or second thought or uh, recursive mental tendencies, if you know what I'm saying. And uh, whenever I read something or hear something uh, that indicates a kind of certainty like that, I tend to measure myself against it. Increasingly, I do this because, uh, as I think I've mentioned before, I feel like our media culture, the modern media culture, and maybe it was always this way, but I feel like uh, media culture tends to reward certainty. You know, it's like the world wants people who know what they think or who pretend to. And so when I read someone or I hear someone doing this, uh, I tend to have conversations with myself, uh, you know, that, that go something like this. I say to myself, is that it? Is that right? Can I do that? What's wrong with me? Do I know what's good? Do I know what I like and don't like? And more importantly, uh, do I know why I like it or why I don't like it? Does it matter? Do I know what I want to say as an artist uh, clearly? Do I know what I want to say as a human being? Do I know how I want to exist in the world? Do I have strong feelings about what sucks and what doesn't suck? And uh, you know what it is that I think ultimately uh, I, d I don't like? Here's what I don't like. Certainty. I think that's the thing. Uh, I'm not entirely sure, but I think I don't like it. How's that for a qualification? How's that for uh, some uncertain certainty? Even giving uh, opinions can drive me crazy because in my mind, it's always fluid. That's my opinion. Uh, like if I take a strong stance on something, which I do, because there's a human tendency, I think, to do that. But whenever I take a strong stance, I always wind up feeling stupid about it afterwards or uh, questioning myself. Uh, or sometimes I'll feel stupid in the very moment that I'm taking the aforementioned stance and I will find myself entertaining opposing positions that undermine the stance, which therefore makes me feel idiotic about the fact that I'm taking a stance in the first place or something. I don't know. The internet, it stresses me out. I just want to shrug. That's what I'm saying. I just want to focus on outer space. I want to read deeply. I want to maintain a cosmic ambivalence. I think, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I'm shrugging right now. I hope that's acceptable. My guest today is Lauren Stein. I'm very pleased to have him here on the program. He is the editor of the Paris Review, one of the truly distinguished publications in American literary culture. And along with Sadie Stein, he has edited a new book called Object Lessons. The Paris Review presents the art of the short story. Uh, in this book, 20 contemporary masters of the genre share their favorite stories from the pages of the Paris Review with personalized introductions. It's a fine collection featuring a bunch of notable authors, and it is available now from Picador Paperback Originals. So let's get to it. This is my conversation with Lauren Stein, the editor of the Paris Review and the editor of the new short story anthology entitled Object Lessons. I'm sitting, um, I'm sitting in my apartment. I'm sitting with, between two open windows in Greenwich Village at my desk with a great big fat manuscript in front of me and... Uh, and a demi-tasse of espresso that I just finished and um, half a bottle of fizzy water. Okay, I can, I can, I can respect the, uh, the espresso coupled with the fizzy water. That's like a, that's a combination <laughs> that I'm used to. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, I've been doing some reading and, and you know, sort of prepping for uh, our talk. And, you know, the, it seems like the media in their coverage of you has gotten a lot of mileage out of the fact that you're uh, in some ways sort of a throwback and they talk a lot about uh, you know, the social aspects of your job and how you handle those. And I'm interested in hearing you talk a little bit about that at the outset. Um, you know, and then also I guess trying to maybe reconcile that with, 
you know, the more solitary and contemplative aspects of what you do, you know, like, like, like for instance, going through a giant manuscript and I'm sure you have to do a ton of reading. So how do you, you know, first of all, how do you approach that? How do you, um, enjoy it or do you enjoy it? And then how do you, you know, kind of reconcile that against having to do all the reading you must have to do? Well, you know, you have a two-year-old and I just had lunch with my sister and her baby. And I think my niece takes up more of my sister's time than, than, than my going out does. I'm just surprised that people can, can, you know, be married and have kids and stuff. I think that that would cut more into, into reading time than, than going out every, every once in a while. And I try to keep, I try to keep the end of the evening most nights actually for, for reading. So I, I usually, I don't eat at home. I always eat out and I usually eat by myself and I, and I read then. And then I read something else when I get home, I read in bed. And, um, and right now I'm sprinting to, to, to catch up on some reading that I need to do right away. And, and then I, and then I, and then I stay at home and, and, and work at home. And my job is nice because it lets me, when I really need to get through something fast, I can, I can put everything else on hold. Yeah. I mean, and then, you know, do you, are you somebody who needs a lot of sleep or are you somebody who can run on very little and, and still be effective? I don't know. You'd probably have to ask people who work with me. I, I have a feeling that I'm, pretty erratic if I don't get much sleep. I, I can't, um, I don't know. I don't feel great when I don't get a lot of sleep. I didn't get a lot of sleep last night because we launched our, our fall issue. And um, I think the last stragglers left the office party around, oh gosh, it was pretty late. I think it was around three. Oh God. Yeah, that is late. But that's also New York. Like, yeah. I feel like I'm in Los Angeles. So like three o'clock in Los Angeles is really late. And like New York, I feel like 3 a.m. Is, is somewhat normal somehow. <laughs> just, just the evening is just getting started at three. I think for some of our, for some, for some of our, our guests, the evening was just getting started, but we'd run out of booze. In fact, it was when we ran out of the um, uh, jalapeno flavored tequila that it just seemed obvious that everyone was going to finally, you know, pull up stakes and make a move and head elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, okay. So what about, uh, you know, like, like I guess there are aspects of it and maybe I'm over, uh, emphasizing this or misreading it, but there seems like aspects of your job that fall outside the range of what is typical for people who uh, write or who work in literature, which is to say that most people, I guess like the classic uh, assessment of people in this realm is that the, they're more introverted than extroverted and that they don't like doing the social aspects of it. But uh, when you look back at the history of the Paris Review and you look at George Plimpton in particular and the kind of legacy that you are now uh, the standard bearer for the, or are carrying, uh, you know, do you feel a sense of obligation to that? Is it something that comes naturally to you? Well, um, yes and no. The thing is that George was a special case. I mean, George was larger than life and and a superhuman socializer uh, and a charmer. And I'm not especially, but but on the other hand, I think um, the idea of editors as leading very solitary lives isn't quite right. I remember when I when I was first becoming a book editor, that was my fantasy was that I would be able to, to keep to myself and, and just work on manuscripts. But, but in real life, the way you, the way you 
know writers and agents and, and other publishers and all the people that you work with, you, you, you end up doing a lot of teamwork effectively. Every time you publish a book, you're really, you're really helping to assemble a team um, beginning with the writer, but, but involving a publicity department and, and book reviewers and um, the person who designs the cover and all that stuff is, is a kind of social skill. So, so the Paris review in a certain way, isn't that different, but, but it's true that what George did was he, he helped create this weird magazine that was, um, and is devoted to, to experimentation really in, in fiction and poetry, especially, but, but he made it look like something for a playboy to do. And there's no, I mean, before George, I'm not sure that anyone would have thought that there was any special connection between, between having a life of fun, of egregious fun, and putting out a kind of offbeat, slightly marginal. I mean, we belong in the margin, and that's, that's, that's where we live. And George made those things seem connected. And once he'd made the connection, it, it lasted. I mean, luckily, I can just... The magazine can kind of can, can, can run the way he set it up without having a, a personality as big as his at the helm. Now he sort of built the framework, you know, and then... Yeah, exactly. It, yeah. He established this, this place in the American imagination, or at least in this little corner of the American imagination for this magazine to do this job that really, it, it still does exactly the same way. It, it, it's strange how much continuity there is at the Paris Review between what it was doing 60 years ago and what it's doing right now. Well, yeah, no, and I, you know, this is, this is unrelated, but it's also related. You know, I was, I remember reading an uh, interview, I think it was with like Tom Petty and he was talking about uh, rock and roll and how it's essentially the same, like the model when something works, it works. And, uh, yeah. You know, that compares the Paris Review to rock and roll, which I guess is kind of a favorable comparison. But I, I know what you're saying. Like, once you have uh, a basic model... Uh, favor, favorable to which, rock and roll or the Paris Review? <laughs> I think it's mutually beneficial. Oh, fair enough, fair uh, enough. But you know what I'm you're saying? You're a gentleman. <laughs> well, you know, I just, I'm just trying to say that, like, I can understand that. Like, you know, once you have yeah. a formula that works... Um, there's no need to kind of overhaul it, but uh, I guess that brings me to my next question. Like, uh, and I guess it would be twofold. One, uh, were you intimidated coming into the job? I mean, was there any kind of fear? And then two, uh, you know, as as um, rock solid as the you know overall basic formula is for the magazine and and what it does, um, you know, obviously you have made attempts to modernize it uh, while at the same time. Um, maintaining the consistencies and the continuities that you just discussed. So, uh, you know, was there intimidation? And then how do you modernize while at the same time not new, you know, not messing around with uh, what works? Well, to go back to your, to the, to the rock and roll analogy, you know, the, the, the way in which it's slightly different, I guess, is that, um, and this, I think may answer some of your question that, that, you know, in 1953, when the magazine started, there was this this idea that that fiction was in decline, and that the real 
the, the, the place for people with really sophisticated brains to do their writing was in criticism. And that was the real trend in little magazines. Criticism in politics. And um, in a funny way, this is what's different from, from the situation with rock and roll. In a funny way, we find ourselves, I think, in a, a weirdly and coincidentally similar moment where poetry certainly and, and fiction too are both seen as sort of um, by, 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 the, by, by, the, by the people I'm, I see writing around me. They're not, those aren't the things that are animating dinner table conversation the way they used to. And they're not what you hear people talking about in bars. And so in a funny way, I found myself given the chance to kind of fight the same fight all over again. And um, so it's as if no one had ever heard of Jerry Lee Lewis, you know? Um, and yeah, it was really intimidating. Yeah. I was, uh, there was, I remember one moment of, of uh, I was shaking in a meeting trying not to let the other people in the, in my office and see that I was, trembling with, with anxiety. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, it's like, it's like the, when someone's giving a reading and they have the piece that they're, they're holding a piece of paper in their hands, uh, <laughs> get, the, get the shaky hands. Yeah. That's when you put it down on the podium. Yeah. You put like it on the podium. Drink of water. Or what I found. And like, this is one of the, uh, the benefits of the e-reader is that if you're holding an iPad or a Kindle, it's a little heavier. So it can, it can help ward off some <laughs> of the shakes. <laughs> Duly um, noted. Yeah. Note to self. Yeah. So, um, so let's talk, uh, you know, about how you view the Paris Review and like where you want to take it. Because, you know, obviously the environment in publishing is, you know, this has been beat to death, but it's obviously going through all sorts of different changes. There's obviously um, a push being made into digital that I think you're, um, that you've sort of spearheaded, you know, make like, you know, kind of building out the Paris Review's online presence and, you know, how do yeah. you, how do you view all that? Like, what do you have a strategy? Uh, like, do you do you find yourself really thinking in terms of uh, long term vision and setting goals that way, or do you find yourself, um, you know, more of a day by day operator? Um, the latter, I'm afraid. I mean, I wish I had a strategy, but 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 you know, the, the thing about a literary magazine is you, you don't have that much control over what's going to be in your next issue. It's not like a glossy where you can assign stuff. I mean, my predecessor assigned pieces and uh, Philip Gravich and, and, and he had, he had some really great reportage that he would assign. And, you know, that, that gives you some control and some sense of where you're going. I just have to wait for stuff to come in with a very few exceptions. So, so, and, and to me, the editorial side is a, is a really important thing. The digital strategy, that's all stuff that has been uh, forced on us because it's become obvious. It, I dragged my heels about putting putting together an app, and I can't say that I did it. I mean, I, I, I know very little about this stuff, but, but um, there are half a dozen of us at the office full-time, and, and our associate editor, uh, Stephen Hiltner, has been doing it, and um, we're going to launch it, knock on wood, in, in a week or two. Um, but I was slow to do it because that's not, that's not, I didn't see a particular need. I didn't think that, I, I wasn't sure that we could, that we could be the very best at, at 
um, creating the kind of content that people were really excited about for apps, you know, video content, for example. I didn't want to see us diverting our attention to something where we couldn't be the best at what we do. Now, it's become obvious that to me that we can't have, for example, great international distribution. So an app will let us do that, but uh, we'll be able to, to, to um, reach our readers in, in India or Australia or England or France instantly and cheaply. So, so that's why we're doing it. But, but the digital subscriptions that we're selling are going to be almost exactly like the print edition and our website, you know, we, we, we relaunched the website and that's where we sell all of our subscriptions now, but that's because the bookstores are closing. So, you know, you got to sell them somewhere and, um, and it's cheaper doing it online than, than, you know, with, with those, uh, those cards that no one actually wants. I use them as, I, I, I use them as bookmarks. You know? <laughs> yeah, I know, but you end up having more bookmarks than books, right? Right, right. right. They're always falling out of <laughs> so, it. So it's all been, it's all been very ad hoc. And then I've been very lucky because we've had these three great, these women, um, Leslie LaForce, and uh, well, most recently Sadie Stein, who've been uh, who've been editing the, uh, our blog, the the Paris Review Daily, which is really a culture gazette and, and doesn't have that much to do with the the magazine proper, but it, it shows it, it's meant to show the way we're the way we are dealing with culture around us and um, and, and the way the writers we're paying attention to are dealing with culture, so that. It, it might give some background to readers who are interested in knowing kind of where, where we're coming from, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and in terms of like growth and in terms of the size of the thing, you mentioned earlier that, you know, a, a magazine like the Paris review lives in the periphery or lives in the margins. And that's where it's supposed to be because of its, uh, function as a forum for experimentation, uh, or at least like that's one of its uh, highest functions. Yeah. So when you look at it as the editor, uh, and you, you know, you're in charge of this thing. Do you have a sense for how big the audience is? Do you have a sense for where the ceiling is for a magazine of this nature? I do, uh, and it's and no one agrees with me. But when I was a book editor, I always heard that there were not very many that, that, there, that there was a ceiling. If I forget what people used to say, but you know that, that there was a, a, a fixed and quite low ceiling for in America for people who really would buy literature. And then a book would come along like The Corrections that sold a million copies or in a smaller way, a novel by Roberto Bolaño that would sell, that a guy who would, was selling 15,000 copies of his books and then, and then suddenly sold more than 100,000 copies of, 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 a, of a big thousand-page experimental novel, 2666. And people will say, well, yeah, but those are exceptions. But that's exactly what you should be publishing is exceptions. You shouldn't publish anything except exceptions. So <laughs> I think that, that the industry always underestimates the possible readership for serious fiction. Now, you know, the Paris Review has more, more readers now than it ever has had before. We've got almost 20,000. Um, if you combine our subscriptions and the copies that we sell and, um, you know, that's not enough. I think, I think we can reach a lot more people. And although in a sense we're devoted to experimentation, it's not, it's not like, um, that doesn't mean inaccessibility. 
when we published Philip Roth for the first time, when we published Goodbye Columbus, that was an experiment in the sense that, that his voice was new. And when we published David Foster Wallace's early novella, um, that was experimental, again, in the sense that it was a discovery. And not, not you know, no one discovers anything. I mean, the writer discovers, and then everything else is just a matter of noticing what's already out there. But then you can discover in the sense of uncovering to a bunch of readers and, and finding the readers who who need this stuff and don't know yet that they need it, who wants it and don't know that they want it. That's the job of any editor, I think, whether of a magazine or of a book. And, and I really think that we can, we can find a lot more readers than we have right now because I think there are a lot of people who would want to read the stuff that we're putting out. Do, do you feel that there's any sense of, sh- like there's any shift, um, you know, or, or I guess you might even call it like a... Uh... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not flashback, but what do you call it? Crackback or what's the word I'm looking for? Um, um, backlash? Yeah, backlash. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. But, you know, where you have everything moving in the direction of digital and then uh, you have, you know, the ebook sales numbers coming out and everybody's sort of like beating this drum saying that it's like, you know, we're on this inex- you know inexorable march towards uh, a land of no print. Like there's a part of me that sort of feels not only personally, but in the people uh, that I know, you know, friends of mine in, in the literary community or just, you know, book nerd people that I know, there is sort of a, a turning back toward uh, not only print, but serious literature. And like, I don't know. Do you, do, you, do you know what I'm saying? Like there might be a growing audience for it or a deepening appreciation for it precisely because so much uh, is digitized and so much uh, is trivialized. Do you, under- do you understand what I mean? I, I think I, I, I think I do, and I, I and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, this inexorable march towards digital digitization of of literature is an inexorable march designed by Amazon to make money. I mean, it's an inexorable march the way we inexorably marched from vinyl to CDs. Now, looking back, we all know that CDs were a crappy technology, and vinyl was a better technology. I mean, it's just better, you know. I was I was but, like the one guy who loved cassette tapes, just because you could like. Oh, cassette tapes! I love cassette tapes too. You yeah. could, why do you love them? I just because you could like spill stuff on them. They were indestructible. Whereas I felt like CDs, like I'm too disorganized and clumsy. I was constantly scratching them, and and you know, it was just in in my car. I was listening. I would just have. I had tons of cassette tapes. I loved them. They're sort of a nostalgia thing for me. What? I'm impressed that you didn't destroy, I managed to destroy a lot of cassette tapes, but, but I know what you're saying. And I loved cassettes too. They were good technology, but, but, um, you take my, you take my point that, 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 the this, this kind of march that we're on is a first march. And no one, no one, no one actually is going to make the argument that reading, um, middle March on a device is as good a reading experience as reading Middlemarch on paper. Now, I'm not a fetishist. I mean, I don't have any special brief for paper. It's just that um, there's no particular advantage, except for, like, carrying luggage, right? Right. So, which most of us don't do that much. You just did a little bit of it, but most of us don't do that much. So I think that, 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 uh, that resistance that we see it's just people's common sense that they that they're being told that that they're over books, but they're not over books, and they're told that their time is better spent 
with devices that that beep them all the time. I mean, my phone just beeped at me to tell me that I had a, a, a message come in as I was talking just now. Now, my phone will tell me that, but I'm a reasonable person, and I know that that's not true. I'd rather be talking to you right now. And when I sit down to read my manuscript, I would rather be reading my manuscript and not have the constant temptation to answer an email. Well, that's, and, um, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Like, I, I, it, it's not only that I, I prefer, or I guess these two, two things are tied together. It's a preference when it comes to reading an actual book, because I've said the same thing that you said in the past, where it's like, look, I'm not a book fetishist, and some people are, and that's fine, you know, but I'm not a person who really, really intensely fetishizes the look and the make of a book. Um, but maybe I'm starting to become more and more that way because I find increasingly that it's, it's really hard for me to have any kind of digital device that has internet access and not feel a more scattered sense of uh, mm -hmm. attention. Do you know what I'm saying? And it, to have a paper book. Of and you, you mentioned Bologna earlier, and I, I just read The Third Reich. Or the Third Reich. Oh, uh, did you like it? I loved it, and I read it in, in print, yeah. and I, uh, it was just like it was wonderful to go to it and to hold it and to have it feel like it was still. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, Absolutely. You know, and it's not you. The thing is, I think we go around feeling this sense of shame that our attention is scattered because it's not. It doesn't feel. You don't feel good about yourself when your attention is scattered, and it, it's not. It's not an accident, and it's not our fault. It's that. People really, they want to sell us stuff. And I'm not blaming anybody, but, but these devices are designed to push content at us. And books just are not designed quite that way. You know, The, the Third Reich, which you just mentioned, is um, that's the second novel in the history of the Paris Review that we serialized. So we, we published the whole novel over the course of a year. And uh, we had Leanne Shapton do the illustrations for it. And it was so much fun to, to, um, to make this thing that, that I know is going to curl up in people's, you know, bathrooms and, and at their beach houses or in was, their crummy apartments. I was going to say, it's a great beach noir. Like it's a great beach read, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty good, especially, you know, well, Especially if, you, if you're not too invested in the idea of everything uh, tying up neatly at the end. But most Bologna fans have learned not to, not to invest too heavily in that. But, um, but, you know, to that degree, I guess maybe I, I am a tiny bit of a fetishist. I, if, if, if you take a copy of the Parrots Review and you put it on your shelf, it's going to be there pretty much until you die or move house, you know. But if you... Um, you know, I transferred all my emails when I left the, the publishing house that I used to work for. And already, I'd, I'd only worked there for uh, 12 years. I guess that's a long time. But but in those 12 years, the, the emails that I'd send in the beginning were almost irrecoverable, you know? And that, nothing that's digital, I don't care what they tell us, nothing that's digital is safe. I mean, I, I mean it's not going to stay the way it is. You're going to have to, you're going to have to update your hardware to access it. This is a huge problem for libraries and archives now. I mean, everybody knows this, or I think a lot of people know it. Um, it's very hard to know how to keep the records, for instance, of a, of a magazine like the Paris Review, because the money that it takes simply to delve into the vast electronic archives that we all have and figure out what's what means that we're entering this dark age where 
where a lot of information is not going to be recoverable because it's not on paper. It's so funny. We think of digital as being the way to store things, but for, for archives and for literature too, I just love the idea of putting something on a shelf and knowing that it's going to stay there, that it will outlast you. That's just... It's just to me that's the way the world makes sense, you know. Well, yeah, it's not, and it's not. It's not only the permanence of the. I mean, just having the physical object there, but it's also the fact that you can't alter it. I worry about like some digital, you know, who knows what happens down the road in the future, and you have, you know, books limited to digital, and you have the ability to either delete or alter content, and you know, uh, sure, that's a pretty, sure. dark, it's a pretty dark future, but anything's possible. You know, I'd prefer to have books on the shelf that kind of stand there as immovable objects. You know, I, I completely agree, and and then. Once you, once you admit that, once you admit certain advantages that it's to no one's commercial interest except like maybe mine and a few other people to, to, to make a commercial argument for these paper objects, once you admit that they have certain technological advantages over digital, once you admit that, then, then I think it's okay to also admit that they have certain beauties and charms that are really fun. I mean, it's really fun to to watch our art editor design the magazine. It, it's really fun to think about stuff like how to lay out a page or, or how to make a cover that's beautiful or, you know, all that stuff. Um, how, to, how to sequence the poetry and the prose and the interviews. And, and there I, I have to cop to a certain, a certain fetishistic uh, pleasure. Oh yeah, I mean, no, I, mean, I think a lot of writers are this way, but I'm like a, I'm totally into fonts, and you know, I can get, oh, yeah. I can get very into that. <laughs> um, yeah, we all can. Yeah, just like, like it brings me un, unusual levels of joy to like just stare at a certain font or pick a font, you know. Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about your biography. Like, I'm interested, uh, you know, in getting at least a basic sense of where you're from, like where you grew up. And then I also want to make sure we touch upon uh, your earlier career uh, because I think it obviously, you know, it led you to where you are now and it obviously informs the work that you do, um, you know, in your current role. So uh, let's start with where you're from. Like, where were you born and what was your childhood like? I was born in Washington, D.C., and I was raised in Washington, D.C., in the city, in Adams Morgan. And then my dad moved to the neighborhood one over, which is not pleasant. And um, uh, I'm very much a city kid. And uh, and I knew from when I was, uh, uh, I guess, a not-so-little kid, when I, from the time I was a big kid, I knew that I was going to escape Washington and go to New York. I always knew that. And um, how did you know that? the first time I saw? Well, my stepfather, the man who became my stepfather, when I met his mom, she 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 lived in New York all her life. She lived at, right near the the Brooklyn Bridge, and um, she took my little sister and me on a on a bus. I think it was probably on Second Avenue, and we looked. At, I just remember looking at the bus window at the tenements and just thinking, "Ah, oh, this is this is." this is what the world is supposed to look like. This is what a city is supposed to look like. This is where I want to be. And I loved the, I loved, she introduced me to Jewish food, which I loved. And, uh, and I associated New York with, with that and with the way, well, the city that she, that we saw with her, I, I loved, um, I loved the size of it. I loved the, it just felt glamorous to me the way the way waiters were rude. It, 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 
it just felt it felt like it home. felt <laughs> like home. Yeah, and and also you know Washington, the Washington that I grew up in was a um, in some ways I think a, a, just a great city. I mean, a really and and my father is also from Washington, so I I have no distance from this question, but. Um, but you know, it, it was a very troubled city. It was really violent when I was a kid, and it was a scary place because there was there was a lot of crime and a lot of shootings, and and uh, a very segregated city, and people who uh, black and white people didn't uh, things were often very strained, and um, and and there's a lot of that in New York too. But but it's different. It's just it's just it was just really freeing. My sister and I both had the exact same feeling of just this, this, this huge weight that we didn't even know we had um, lifting when, when we moved to New York. We, we moved to New York at different times, but we both felt that. Was, and was it both like that, that uh, what was it, your stepfather's mother who gave you the tour, essentially? Was that, was that like, yeah. did it have a similar impact on your sister? It sounds like she must have been a great tour guide. Uh, in, in addition to the city just sort of presenting itself, or is that not true? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Did she, did, um, she did, did her enthusiasm infect you, or was it simply just you showed up and the grandeur of the place just bowled you over on its own? I think it was more just that, more that, I, I don't know, I should ask my sister whether she remembers that trip. She would have been pretty little because she's two years younger than I am. Um, but I just remember that looking out the window and seeing this thing. I don't think it was anything that my that my grandmother uh, said particularly. And I remember going to the Second Avenue Deli, which is a big deal. And I don't think it, I think that uh, any tour guide could have done that. Though she she definitely was a very she was a very serious New Yorker. She was a, a real um, she was a real inhabitant of the place. Um, but. Um, New York would knock anyone out, you know. Yeah, I mean, and did you have any kind of like literary preparation? Like, had you read books that were set in New York that sort of like kind of haunted your imagination? Like, did you have an anticipation of it from something like? I that? think I think kids' books. You know, so many kids' books are set in New York, and YA novels are set in New York, and I think there was some of that. I remember thinking when I was a kid that it must be really weird to live in um, London because you would find the places that were mentioned in books, you would know as, as streets, as actual streets. And that wasn't true. You know, that's not true for most Americans. And, um, it wasn't true for me. And I remember thinking that that would be really, really cool. And, and you find some of that in New York. I don't think that there was some special book that, you know, it's not that I'd memorized a tree grows in Brooklyn, but, <laughs> but, you know, no one's going to write a tree grows in Adams and Morgan. So, <laughs> and, and definitely those, those landscapes, the, I mean, those cityscapes are really familiar because in New York, and this is something that I, I like about LA a lot compared to New York. In New York, you know, you know that song, New York, I Love You, But You're Bringing Me Down yeah, yeah, yeah. by LCD Sound System. Yeah. Well, you know, everyone has that feeling because you, you walk down any street in New York, any block, if you've lived here for a little while. And it looks the same, but it's changed completely. And you feel the generations pass so quickly. But but the city kind of rebukes the city that is with the city that was. Wherever you are, I mean, wherever you are, the neighborhoods change. And, and let's face it, they grow worse. That, that's just the way time always feels. You know, the, the world is falling away from its true self into some cheap simulacrum with a bunch of, you know, bank 
you know, the, what do you call those ATM outlets? <laughs> and um, in LA, at least for an Easterner, I think the city seems the city seems to be more. I don't know how to put this, but um, maybe you know what I mean. It seems to be more at ease with the fact of transience, and 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 it seems more in touch with the actual cycle of human lives. You don't you don't see facades that that look basically the same as they did a hundred years ago. Things look most of LA looks looks more new, and um, and it's really it comes as a strange relief to be driving around in LA, or in my case, to be driven around because I don't know how, but um, and and not to feel nostalgia, you know, right. it feels like a city. And maybe if you grow up there, that's not true. But it feels like a city that isn't in the grip of nostalgia the way New York always, always is. Yeah, you know, it's weird because it's weird that you say that because I was just talking to somebody. I, I've only been here for 12 years, but I was talking to somebody who is a lifelong uh, Los Angelino, you know, born and raised. And, and she was saying that it's essentially the same. She had just taken her son uh, I want to say her son and daughter over to Griffith Park to ride the ponies or something. And she's like, you know, it's yeah. the same freaking sign at the pony ride place. And you go to the farmer's market and it's the same crappy tables and chairs that were there when she was a kid in the seventies. Like it literally hasn't changed. Um, That's great. You know, but you know, she, but did she feel, but, but did she feel that same in New York? You think, yeah, I'm on the Lower East Side, but it's not the Lower East Side anymore. Yeah, I'm in Little Italy, but it's not Little Italy anymore. Yeah, I'm in Greenwich Village, but it's not really the village. It's just this museum of the village. Yeah. And I guess that museum quality seems... I don't feel that. Do you feel that there in LA too? No, I mean, I don't have... I don't think I've been here long enough to get a sense of that, but I, I sort of... I, I think I agree with what you're saying. I mean, there, there isn't that sense of... Uh, you know, nostalgia, or maybe you can call it death if you want to be more extreme, haunting everything like that. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That, that's the sadness, the heaviness that I think you're getting at. And Los Angeles kind of feels perpetually new. Uh, like one of the things I've said, and I don't want to sound too, um, you know, uh, precious about it, but I've, I, it feels like such a natural home for a contemporary art. Like Los Angeles just feels like futuristic somehow yeah do you know like that just kind of and, and so you know i, I yeah. love that about it but you know i'm sure if there are some people who've probably been here a lot longer than i have who could point to neighborhoods that have changed and ways that it used to be better and things like that but uh when i go to new york you know my wife and i always love the fact that you have a real sense of history so you know i think that yeah the, the two cities really could not be uh more different in their general dynamic it's so interesting you know like the did you grow up down south? Where did you grow up? I grew up in the Midwest. So, but my parents are both from Louisiana. So I have like southern oh, roots. But I'm from like I was born in Milwaukee. So I lived in the Midwest and uh, then went to Colorado and then came out to California. So I've never lived on the East Coast. It's the only part of the country that I don't have any real basis in. Milwaukee is such a strange and interesting town. I just what do they call it? The biggest small city or the smallest? Something like that. What? I mean, I was there. I, I was there from seventy-five to eighty-six. So I was, a, you know, I was like twelve when I left, or something, or eleven when oh, I left. I see. So you know, I don't. I never drove there, which I think sort of changes your relationship to a place. But I loved it. You know, like I loved growing up in Wisconsin, and uh, we went to Indiana after that. And uh, you know, I have a, a ton of great friends from there, but I don't have as fond of feelings for it. And I think that might have something to do with the fact that I was an adolescent there. You know, I think you. Yeah. I think course. whenever you hit those years, you're always sort of at odds with whatever your hometown is. But 
Um, yeah. it's just not that same sense of warmth. Like I, I grew up in a town in Wisconsin where that had like a general store. I mean, it was, you know, <laughs> it feels like from a different time. Um, wow. so, so, but back to your, uh, you know, your childhood and, uh, in Washington, uh, I'm interested in knowing what kind of kid you were. Like, were you a precocious kid? Were you, were you bookish right from the start? Like, did you have a sense of yourself and the, and the general direction that you've taken in your adult life and your professional life from a young age, or was it something that, you know, sort of came to you later, uh, after the fact? I don't know. That's funny. Um, I think probably, I mean, you know, when you look back, don't you always sort of think, of course, that things would have turned out that way. I read a lot. I, I wasn't very good at other things in school. I always liked to read. I wasn't very good at, I mean, I was terrible at sports. Um, reading was what came naturally. I was never a great student, but, you know, if you read a lot, you you know, school is a happy place, or it can be. I was lucky I went to schools where that was encouraged and people were nice. And um, um, I know I'm not answering your question, but it's sort of hard to, it's sort of hard to know. You don't, if someone had asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I'd probably have said a fireman because that's what boys are supposed to say. I don't think I was in touch with what I, with the idea of growing up. I don't think kids, most kids are, but looking back, looking back, I always loved, I mean, I remember a, a guy coming to our school, a, a children's book artist named Ashley Bryan. I remember him coming to our, school and talking about making a book when I was in second grade. And I just remember thinking that that was the most amazing thing to, to be able to meet somebody who had actually written a book. And, and I remember how long he said it took to do. And in child terms, it just seemed like forever, just terrifying amount of time, you know, right. it takes, you know, a couple of years. I, that was just horrifying. It still sort of is. So I don't know. So, and, and you went to, uh, did you go to Sidwell? Is that correct in Washington? Yeah, I went to Sidwell Friends. Mm -hmm. So that's—I mm -hmm. mean—that school's fascinating. That's where like the Obama daughters go, and you know, it's obviously in the press. It's where like Chelsea Clinton went. It's a good high school, obviously, uh, or, or was it not? I mean, did you have a, a good experience there? Oh, I loved it. I really loved it. I, I think it was not as fancy as it is now. I think, you know, I think it's my impression is that it's become. Um, more, I don't know, fancier place, but it, you know, it's a Quaker school and, um, uh, it wasn't a strongly religious place, but, but I, I love that part of it. And I felt very at home there when I was, when I was a little kid, um, my sister and I had scholarships to go to, to a school in the suburbs, uh, that was a very kind of, well, very sports oriented and, and a lot of kids with a lot of money, a lot more money than we had and, um, very Anglophile and Republican. And, um, and, and I got, I got picked on a lot because I was so hopeless at the stuff that they, that they valued. And, and then when I got to see well friends, when I was 12, it was just, it just, in some ways, life has just been so easy ever since then because everyone was just so nice and accepting. That was that was new. It was okay to be kind of a nerd. And in fact, right away, I found myself close to 
you know, I had my, my first real friends. They were artsy kids who were already really serious about their, um, much more serious than I was, and really precocious kids who had um, really brilliant, and and some some are still close friends of mine now. So that was very lucky. It, it was also, um, I didn't realize I had so much to say about this, but, um, you know, in Washington, there are a lot of um, families from other countries, uh, and at several friends, there were a lot of uh, international students, and I think that was a, that was I know that that was a very big deal for me that my best friends were were from very very different places and had much more exciting family backgrounds than than mine. Well, no, so, that's a good part. I mean, that 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 in and of you know of, in and of itself is an education. You know, just to have exposure at that young of an age to people from different cultures. Yeah, yeah, it can. So what about uh, what about college? You went on to college, obviously afterwards, and uh, you went to Yale. Mm -hmm. And what was that like? Was that equally as uh, was that an equally good experience, or, or did it not, did it not? It's uh, it's so I, I I'm afraid it's so boring, but I I loved it. I just loved it. It was just it was um really really great. I, I again I was I was very lucky. There were there were people around who were much more serious than I was and, and much, much better students and people in those days, there was a lot of, maybe there still is mixing between undergraduates and, and, and graduates and graduate students and professors. And also in the city and New Haven reminded me of Washington in some ways. And, and I, I never lived on campus and I, I had a job in a, in a cafe and a lot of my life was was involved in other parts of the downtown, and so so again, it was a matter of being surrounded by um, people I found well much more interesting than than, for example, I was, and I think that in some ways maybe that that's what editors if editors have something in common, I think it's, it's that kind of luck of finding themselves around, um, people who interest them and, uh, and life just sort of happens to throw these things in my way. Well, you also have to recognize them when they come, you know, <laughs> it's, it's sort of a, well, you know, I'm sure you have people in your, in your life. You, you can't overlook them. They, they, um, they light you up. I mean, the, the first, my my first class, my first day of school uh, at college, um, I was in a philosophy class. I mean, that happened to be my first class, and and I was just amazed by this one girl in the class. Like she just radiated intelligence, and and I thought, wow, when my heart leapt up, my heart did all kinds of things. And yeah, was she good looking and, too? You know, <laughs> She was wonderful looking. Oh, man. It's to me very strange looking. I, I, I hadn't seen someone who looked like her before. Very, very extravagantly Jewish looking with this very long hair and um, and uh, and you know now she's the mother of my godson and she's teaching philosophy at Oxford and um, there would have been no way to overlook her. You know, I think I think a lot of people felt the way I did about her, but. 
Right, right. So what, what, what was your area of study? You weren't a philosophy major, were you? Or? I wanted to be. Probably if, if I hadn't known her, I might have been, but, but it became obvious to me that I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't have what it took. So I, uh, I wanted to do philosophy, then, then I thought I would do, well, um, English, I guess it sort of became clear that I would do English because what else would I do? Um, it being, you know, the, it's like taking a course in breathing, right? I mean, that's the language we all speak. So, uh, I wouldn't recommend it except you get to read a lot. Right. And, um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I thought I would probably try to become a lawyer or something. I didn't know. And, um, and, and, Oh, I, I, I thought I would. Oh, I thought I would become a professor. I wanted to become a. I thought I'd become an Americanist again. Talk about you know studying stuff that you probably don't need to study because there you are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought I would do 19th century American studies, and and then I um I didn't get into the place I wanted to get in, and which was so lucky because I would have gone, and and I got in somewhere else, and it was sort of you know I got the phone call where they tell you how much money you'll get for how many years to complete your dissertation. And I just, again, it was just like being in second grade and hearing how long it takes to make a book. I just thought, oh my God, five years? I'm going to spend the next five years doing the 1840s with a sideline in the 1890s? I just, <laughs> and I, I, again, by luck, I happened to bump into my college advisor. We weren't we weren't very close. I looked up to him a lot, but I and I told him I didn't know what to do, and it was too late for me to take the the LSAT, and you know, and he suggested that I that I apply to um, to get a teaching fellowship at at Johns Hopkins in the writing program in the poetry program, and um, my my advisor is, is a poet, uh, a very impressive poet, and uh, um, who is I, it? You know, John Hollander, student John Hollander, okay. a great scholar of the of, of Renaissance poetry, especially. Uh, and uh, I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not a poet. And he said, oh, I know you're not a poet, but you can probably get in, and that way you'll learn whether you can teach. Um, and it's a one-year program, and and there are these other people you can in other disciplines who you, you should study with when you're there. So I took his advice and. Um, and I was a terrible teacher, so that was very clarifying. I mean, I, I, I would have been a terrible academic, so that was very lucky. It was also lucky that it wasn't a two-year program because I probably would have just died of misery. <laughs> right. Yeah, one year's enough. If if you you know if you well, one year's more than enough. Yeah, you can figure <laughs> that out. So, uh, how did you wind up? You, you worked on Might Magazine with Dave Eggers, and I'm, I'm forgetting the other principles, but that was part of your work history as well, correct? Uh, in a sense, I, I wrote some stuff for them, but I I only met uh, Paul Tullis, I think, was the editor who I met. But I they, that was in San Francisco, and I I just happened to send them an article. I, I I'd been told by a cousin of mine who was giving me kind of job advice. He 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 told me that you could go to Barnes and Noble and read the magazines for free, which I had no idea of, and the books too. So I. I was kind of giving myself a crash course in um, contemporary fiction. And I was also trying to write some magazines. That's what I wanted to do at that moment. So I 
I would read all these magazines to sort of see different places I might write for. And, um, and I had this one article that had been turned down by the three penny review, which is also in San Francisco. And, and so I just sent it off to a bunch of places and, and, and two magazines wrote me back and said that they wanted it. One was, um, night, which I knew nothing about. And one was the national review, which I knew nothing about. But then I read a little more and I realized that I probably didn't belong in the pages of the national review. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, Oh God, I was such a dumb, I was such a dummy. And I, so I, so I ended up, writing stuff for them they were very encouraging so you were just a contributor there like a contributing writer i think the, the title was contributing editor but that just meant that you'd written a certain number of pieces for them they didn't pay so they would you know give you a title right 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 and then how did you wind up at uh Ferrar, strauss and Giroux? um well i got a job as a secretary kind of a part-time secretary at, at publishers weekly which is the trade magazine of publishing and um and when I was doing that, I was in the department that was in, in charge of uh, reviewing all the books that would come out, you know. And um, so the, I don't know, maybe 100 books reviewed a week. And I got to know, I, I learned a lot there because you'd see all these galleys come in and you just got a sense of who was doing what. And there was only one house that really attracted me. And that was, that was Silas Strauss. And I, I tried to get jobs at other publishing houses because I thought it would make me a more attractive candidate to work there. And at a certain point, I realized that's what I wanted to do. And it was the first actual ambition I ever had was to work there. And um, I, uh, I was sent on a reporting assignment to, um, to do some sort of backup interviewing of, of two young editors at, 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 at Farris Strauss. And, uh, and I did the thing that you're never supposed to do. Once once the piece came out, I you know sent one of them my my resume, um, and uh, and I was hired to be the assistant to to the guy who was then editor in chief. And then when I was his assistant, he became publisher. So that created a you know a, a, a workload that he couldn't you know he needed to hand stuff off. And and I was lucky that I was. So so I started editing things and. Um, that's, that's how it happened. Okay, so let's talk a bit about editing because that brings us back full circle and gets us to what you're currently doing. And it's it's the crux of the job, as you said earlier. You know, you, if you don't do that well, then nothing's going to turn out well. You know, <laughs> um, e even if the thing is designed beautifully. You know, it's obviously about the content and it's about finding good writers. And you have a, a pretty sterling track record uh, when it comes to. Uh, your editorial work, you know, starting at FSG, uh, you worked with, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, you worked with uh, writers like Sam Lipsight. Uh, you did some editorial work for Jonathan Franzen. Uh, you can fill in other names, but I mean, you, you've hit some some major successes and you've found some, um, some really strong writers. And I'm curious to know how you did that. You know what I'm saying? Like, do you have a formula? Is it instinct? Is it luck? You know, like, how do you assess it? Well, I guess the first thing I should say is that, you know, a lot of the writers I worked with, a lot of the writers whose names you and your listeners will know are writers who, who were already at the house um, and writers who I admired for, for years. So it was just very lucky to be working with them, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I'd, I'd, I'd looked up to Jonathan Franzen 
for years before I before I found myself doing any kind of work for him, uh, for example. Um, but that other question about, I guess you're asking about taste, really, and you know, it's very hard to when when you're a publisher, often foreign publishers, for example, ask you to, what or agents will ask you what sort of book you like, you know, because they they want to know what they should send you, and it's a fair question, but it's always hard to know. I, I was surprised. I got used to it, but I was surprised to to hear that my taste was considered um, dark, or sometimes they use the word edgy and quirky. That's the, that's the uh, one that always gets stuck quirky. on me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you probably are quirky. I have a feeling you are quirky. I might be. I might be. But you know, that's not. I mean, if I found these things dark, I wouldn't. I wouldn't like them. I I, I like. It's very hard to know what you like. I mean, what you can say is when is when you find a writer, when you read a book, and and for me, it's usually been not books that I later signed up, but books that someone else published that that made me think differently about my job. Like I read a novel by Roberto Bolaño called By Night in Chile that someone made me read. Actually, a friend of Bolaño's made me read this book in English, and. And it changed my idea of what my job should be because uh, I didn't think that there was ever going to be a chance that I would ever get a chance to 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 edit books by Roberto Bolaño. But but the fact that I hadn't known about this book and that it was so obviously not just a good foreign book, but a, as good a book as anything I've read lately, and that in some ways better than anything I've read, American or foreign made me realize that my, my antennae weren't what I thought they were and that the fact that everyone in America wasn't talking about Bolaño made me think that something wasn't quite clicking right. And, um, you know, I just had that experience last week with uh, this Norwegian writer. Uh, in, in Norwegian, I think they say Knauskor, but we'd probably say Knauskar, Carl Ulver Knauskar. Um, this book, My Struggle, and now I'm reading another novel of his called um, called A Time for Everything. And this guy is just, he's just astonishing. He's so original and interesting. Not original and interesting the way people say, you know, we should read books in translation because it gives us another perspective. I, I've never bought that. I don't believe that. I think we read writers, not not nationalities. And I don't care what size country he's from. He's just great. And he's changing. You know, I'd love to find a way to publish some of his work in the Paris Review. And, um, and I'm going to try to do that. But, um, but you know what? I have, to, I have to answer the door. Can this be in the podcast? Sure, yeah. Go for it. Okay. Someone's, an intern is bringing me my computer from the office. Oh, okay. Um, Oh, really? Yeah. I wish I got to say goodbye to her, but, um, um, so we were talking about, we were talking about, uh, you know, I was saying that, but that, that, yes, I'm sorry, but most of the, most of the 
moments I could point to as defining to me what I liked. Those were all moments, almost all moments of reading a, a book that already existed out there in the world that someone else had had published. I mean, sometimes there's a, been a manuscript, but that's that's less common. I mean, in the case of the same website, I, there was a manuscript of uh, Homeland that was making the rounds. So many of my friends owned a copy of this manuscript as a Word document. It was before eBooks, and they would just read it on their computers. And uh, it just, I, I don't know why, but publishers kept, well, I have an idea why publishers kept turning it down, because uh, if a book is funny, you know, if a book is just fallen, then, then there can be disagreement about it. And the boss, if the boss doesn't like it so much, he or she may okay it anyway. But if it's, if it's a book that lives or dies by its, by its wit, by its humor, by whether it makes you laugh, then all it takes is for the most important person in the room not to laugh. Uh, and, and the book probably won't get published. And to me, Sam website was just, and is just outrageously funny, but, I think that might be slightly a generational thing and some some older people don't find him as funny as as, as I do and maybe do you like his work? Yeah, yeah, no. I mean it's it's hard for me to believe anyone wouldn't think he's funny, but I guess it's I know. But lots of people turn that book down and and that makes, and that makes friends me feel, of mine that makes me feel strangely better. That makes me feel strangely better. Does it? I, just, uh, I, just, I mean, just that if it can happen to him, do you know what I'm saying? Like I think it, my listeners mm-hmm. would probably feel a little bit heartened by the fact that you know, it's not, uh, you know, even great writers have to go through that, you know? I think he was turned down by 15 or 16 different houses. And so by the time, by the time I was allowed to sign that book up, it, it already so much existed in, in my little world. I mean, I, I remember hearing Sam give a reading and, and the crowd actually chanted the first sentences of that book because everyone kind of knew them by heart. Just mm. we'd all, in a sense, the book had already in a tiny way been published. You know, it was old news. I mean, it's news that stays news, but that's, that's what I mean about the word discovery being kind of wrong for, for what editors do because or only half right because you, you're, you're exposing things, but, but they always already exist. Well, and that, you know? okay, yeah. And that, that brings me to like, a, you know, one of my, one of my final questions for you is that, you know, and, and again, we're coming kind of full circle because it's going to uh, touch upon the social aspect of your job as the editor of the Paris review and, and really just the social aspects of publishing and working and living in New York period where, uh, you know, obviously that's where the publishing industry lives and there's a lot more going on, um, you know, in terms of business social activities in that realm uh, in New York than there is in, in Los Angeles or anywhere else. So when you look at what you're doing, and obviously reading is, is central. You have to read the manuscripts. You have to read submissions. You have to have your ear to the ground to make sure that you're getting um, your hands on the best stuff as soon as possible. I would assume that's part of your approach. But what it, what's interesting uh, to think of is that, you know, not only is it reading – that you have to be doing, but I, I would assume you're probably also getting uh, a lot of good stuff by way of being social and being out there in the community and talking to people and meeting writers and talking to other editors. I mean, do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like, is that a, a huge central element of it that, that, 
you know, is sort of yeah, indispensable. Sure. I mean, how else could it happen? Sure. It can't just be sitting there at yeah. your desk and, and going through the slush pile and opening envelopes all day long. Like you, you probably have to get a lot of it socially. I think that's true. You, you, people, I, I have so many friends who make me read things. John Jeremiah Sullivan, our Southern editor, has been making me read Daniel Defoe. Um, and James Wood is the reason that I read Knausgaard and, uh, and and the fact that Coffee House Press had published Ben Lerner, uh, this, this guy who wrote this novel, Leaving the Atocha yeah, Station, yeah, which was, I love. Yeah, it's like my favorite book of, uh, whatever, 2011, I guess that was the year. Oh, isn't it good? Yeah. Isn't it just great? It's I mean, what a knockout. Yeah. It's such a good book. Well, because, because, of, the, because of that book, um, I was paying closer attention than I had to to other things that, that, that they were publishing. And I, and I found a writer who I should have noticed a long time ago, a, a guy named um, Sam Savage, an older guy who published his first novel with them when he was 69. Now he's in his seventies and he's publishing his fourth novel. And we publish, we're publishing a great big chunk of that book kind of reworked in the current Paris review. Uh, the novella we're calling the novella is, is called the mining your mood. And, and the novel is called the way of the dog. And I wouldn't have, I worry that I wouldn't have known Savage's work because God knows it had been out there for a few years. And it's only because of the luck of my, of sitting where I sit that, you know, if I miss something the first time, there's some chance that someone will, will force it to my attention later on. I think that is one of the uh, advantages of being a in New York and b in a job where you're supposed to be paying attention and people are are bringing things to your attention. Yeah, well, you couldn't no. do it without that. Yeah. Well, and it's funny though that you say that because it's essentially the same process repeated among casual readers or the casual reading public, where uh, word of mouth ultimately. I mean, you can do all sorts of different things marketing wise, and you can try all sorts of different strategies using social media and you can take out full page ads and magazines, but ultimately there's nothing more effective. I think than somebody just basically pushing a book into your hands and saying, you must you know, read this book. And I don't think a book can ever sell unless exactly as you say, unless someone is making her mom read it. And that's, that's just, there's just, no, I can't imagine how a book would take off without, without, well, I'm just repeating what you said when saying it less well, without, without word of mouth. Books take too much investment from the reader. It takes too long to read a book that, you know, unless someone you, you, you like or respect or love really urges it on you and, and that doesn't have to be um, it doesn't have to be an actual acquaintance you know it, it could be a critic wh whose sensibility means a lot to you the way the, I had a friend who, who made a mission of just seeing every movie that Pauline Kael ever liked right uh, and she, she hated violence in movies my friend and and she didn't actually, I mean, I realized at a certain point that she didn't actually have the same taste as Pauline Kael, but she was just under the spell of Pauline Kael. And so she wanted to be close to this dead lady that way. And so every time a movie was revived that Kael had written about, she would, she would go to see it. And I, I don't think you, you know, in that sense, you don't need to be 
in a particular location or to have a certain gang of, of pals. Well, you just have to be paying attention. I mean, I, a lot of the, my favorite books I got from some of my favorite writers, you know, following what they like tends to, if you, if you love a book by, you know, so-and-so and that author, you know, has their favorite list of favorites, usually, you know, you'll find a couple in that pile that are going to really resonate. You know, that's definitely been the case. That's so true. It's like following a breadcrumb trail, you know? That's right. So it's good that you're able to do that. Not everybody has the time, you know? Well, yeah. And it's or just, makes the time. I, I think, uh, some of it's luck. I think, and I think too, I don't know. I think some of it's instinct. I mean, I, w- I would imagine you have, uh, you know, you referred to it as an antenna earlier. You, you obviously have a good antenna. Anybody who works uh, successfully in an editorial capacity has to have some of that, you know, just, I don't know. It's, it's like, let me put it to you this way, and, and you can agree or disagree, but I find like uh, a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. And I think I've even told this story on this podcast before. But I remember distinctly, I was living in Boulder at the time in Colorado, and I remember going into the Boulder bookstore and walking around, and I hadn't read anything about that book. And I remember just walking up to it on the shelf and picking it up, and I have no idea why. And uh, you know, likewise with the Ben Lerner book, like I, I guess it might have been, maybe it was the review in The New Yorker, but I don't think it was. I think I'd heard about it just in passing, you know, like a blip, and maybe it was like David Shields or someone who... Uh, you know, had been talking about it or had written about it briefly. And it's just those little bits like stick with me. And uh, suddenly I'm reading it and it's a book that everybody's talking about. And you know what I'm saying? How certain books just sort of emerge from the culture. And it's, it's hard to even understand how they found their way into your hands, but it happens. I completely know what you're saying. And I think it points to something that makes editors and non-editors the same. We all, we all have antennae. And they're tuned to what we need. And if you hadn't walked straight up to a heartbreaking work um, that day, I have a feeling it would have happened another time. And I have a feeling also that there are books that you picked up that week that you then put down and, and didn't keep going. And in retrospect, it seems as though a heartbreaking work of staggering genius you know, put a tractor beam on you and, and drew you in. But actually, you were probably subtly projecting a bunch of other things at the same time. Also, it's got such a great title. Yeah, that's it, uh, too. That's it, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, Lauren... And I suspect the same... Oh, yes. No, go we're ahead. We're done. I was just going to say, it's, it's been great to talk to you, but if you have another thought, we, you're welcome to add it. No, I, I've, you've, you've juiced me of every thought I ever had. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. Thank you. No, I really appreciate it. It's been great, uh, a great pleasure to have you on the show, and I appreciate the time. Thanks. All right, you guys, that is Lauren Stein. Go get the new book. It is called Object Lessons. The Paris Review presents The Art of the Short Story. It is available now from Picador Paperback Originals. And be sure to check out The Paris Review online at theparisreview.org. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. And, hey, if you're a fan of the program, if you're a regular listener and you want to donate a few bucks to the cause to help keep the lights on, you can do that at otherpeoplepod.com by clicking on Donate up there in the right sidebar. The show has a Twitter feed at Other People Pod. Follow it. It's enjoyable. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy if you would like to read my deeply personal tweeting. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you would like to email me and let me know your thoughts, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to check out the nervousbreakdown.com, too. That is my online uh, literary outfit. 
And uh, what else? The whole certainty versus uncertainty thing. The whole feeling uncertain about certainty. The whole uh, feeling certain about uncertainty. I don't know. You know, I don't know how to even explain it. I find it exhausting is what I'm saying. And I'm sure it could be argued that we need uh, some strong thinkers in the world. And, and you know what? For all I know, uh, you know, to be a top flight artist, maybe you have to have that kind of crazy belief in whatever happens to flower in your mind. Uh, if that's the case, then I'm probably screwed because here's my thing. I question the flowers. That's what I do. Things flower and I'm like, what? Uh, and ultimately I, I, I think that I was brought to this earth to articulate confusion. I'm left with nothing else. I think that I emerged here through no fault of my own and uh, was randomly charged with the mission of being publicly exasperated. Is that okay? Please remember that Rilke was devoted to polishing furniture and that Jackson Pollock liked to bake pies. Thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for spreading the word. Thank you for rating and reviewing the show in the iTunes store. I am certain that I appreciate that. Uh, okay. I'm certain about it. I know it for a fact. I'm not currently entertaining the opposite of that thought in my brain with any level of seriousness. I am not professing certainty about my appreciation in an effort to, to uh, improve my own well-being because I read somewhere once that gratitude is among the healthiest and most productive emotive states. I'm not doing that. Uh, that's not the case. Uh, that is not the case. I don't think that's the case. Is that the case? I don't know what the case is. <laughs>